Section 30 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lynn. Chapter 22, Swinburne, Part 2, Genius Without Eyes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Swinburne, says Mr. Gloss, was not quite like a human being. That is chiefly what is the matter with his poetry. He did not write quite like a human being. He wrote like a musical instrument. There are few poets whose work is less expressive of personal passions. He was given to much ecstasies, but it is remarkable that most of these were echoes of other people's ecstasies. He sought after rapture, both in politics and poetry, and he took as his masters Mazzini in the one and Victor Hugo in the other. He has been described as one who, while conversing, even in his later years, kept bobbing all the while like a cork on the sea of his enthusiasms. And in a great deal of his rapture, there is much of the levity as well as the bobbing quality of the cork. He who sang the hymns of the Republic in his youth ended his life as rhetorician and chief of the Jingoes against the Irish and the Boers. Nor does one feel that there was any philosophic basis for the change in his attitude as there was for a similar change in the attitude of Burke and Wordsworth in their later years. He was influenced more by persons than by principles. One does not find any real vision of a republic in his work as one finds it in the work of Shelley. He had little of the saintliness of spirit which marks the true Republican and which turns politics into music in the mass of anarchy. He was not one of those tortured souls like Francis Adams which desire the pulling down of the pillars of the old bad world more than love or fame. There is no utterance of the spirit in such lines as, Let our flag run out straight in the wind, the old red shall be floated again, when the ranks that are thin shall be thinned, when the names that are twenty are ten, when the devil's riddle is mastered, and the gaily bench creaks with a pope, we shall see Bonaparte the bastard kick heels with his throat in a rope. It is possible for those who agree with the sentiments to derive a certain satisfaction from verse of this sort as from a vehement leading article, but there is nothing here beyond the rhetoric of the hot fit. There is nothing to call back the hot fit in anybody older than a boy. Even when Swinburne was writing out of his personal experience, he contrived somehow to empty his verse of personality and to put sentimentalism and rhetoric in its place. We have an instance of this in the story of the love affair recorded by Mr. Goss. Swinburne, at the age of 25, fell in love with a kinswoman of Sir John Simon, the pathologist. She gave him roses. She played and sang to him, and he conceived from her gracious ways an encouragement which he was far from seriously intending. Swinburne proposed to her, and possibly from nervousness, she burst out laughing. He was only human and feeling bitterly offended, and they parted on the worst of terms. He went off to Northumberland to escape from his wretchedness, and there he wrote The Triumph of Time, which Mr. Goss maintains is the most profound and the most touching of all his personal poems. He assured Mr. Goss, fourteen years afterwards, that the stanzas of this wonderful lyric represented with the exactest fidelity the emotions which passed through his mind when his anger had died down, and when nothing remained but the infinite pity and the pain. 
beautiful though the poem intermittently is however it seems to me to lack that radiance of personal emotion which we find in the great love poems there is much decoration of music of a kind of which swinburne and poe alone possessed the secret as in the verse beginning there lived in france a singer of old by the tireless dolorous midland sea in a land of sand and ruin and gold there shone one woman and none but she but is there more than the decoration of music in the verses which expresses the poet's last farewell to his passion i shall go on my ways tread out my measure fill the days of my daily breath with fugitive things not good to treasure do as the world doth say as it saith but if we had loved each other o oh sweet had you felt lying under the palms of your feet the heart of my heart beating harder with pleasure to feel you tread it to dust and death ah had i not taken my life up and given all that life gives and the years let go the wine and honey the balm and leaven the dreams reared high and the hopes brought low come life come death not a word be said should i lose you living and vex you dead i shall never tell you on earth and in heaven if i cry to you then will you care to know browning unquestionably could have expressed swinburne's passion better than swinburne did it himself he would not have been content with a sequence of vague phrases that made music with him each phrase would have been dramatic and charged with a personal image or a personal memory swinburne however was a great musician in verse and beyond belittlement in this regard it would be incongruous to attempt a close comparison between him and longfellow but he was like longfellow in having a sense of music out of all proportion to the imaginative content of his verse there was never a distinguished poet whose work endures logical analysis so badly mr arthur simmons in a recent essay refers scornfully to those who say that the dazzling brilliance of swinburne's form is apt to disguise a certain thinness or poverty of substance but he produces no evidence on the other side he merely calls on us to observe the way in which swinburne scatters phrases and epithets of imaginative subtlety by the way while most poets present us with their best effects deliberately it seems to me on the contrary that swinburne's phrasing is far from subtle he induces moods of excitement and sadness by his musical scheme rather than by individual phrases who can resist for example the spell of the opening verses of before the mirror the poem of enchantment addressed to whistler's little white girl one hesitates to quote again lines so well known but it is as good an example as one can find of the pleasure-giving qualities of swinburne's music apart from his phrases and images white rose and red rose garden is not so white snowdrops that plead for pardon and pine from fright because the hard east blows over the maiden rose grow not as thy face grows from pale to bright behind the veil forbidden shut up from sight love is there sorrow hidden is there delight is joy thy dower or grief white rose of weary leaf late rose whose life is brief whose loves are light the snowdrop image in the first verse is charming as is the sound of the lines nonsense the picture of the snowdrops pleading for pardon and pining from fright would have been impossible to a poet with the realizing genius of the great writers swinburne's sense of rhythm however was divorced in large measure from his sense of reality he was a poet without the poet's gift of sight william morse complained that swinburne's poems 
did not make pictures swinburne had not the necessary sense of the lovely form of the things around him his attitude to nature was lacking as mr goss suggests in that realism which give coherence to poetry to quote mr goss's own words swinburne did not live like wordsworth in a perpetual communion with nature but exceptional and even rare moments of concentrated observation wakened in him an ecstasy which he was careful to brood upon to revive and perhaps at last to exaggerate as a rule he saw little of the world around him but what he did see was presented to him in a blaze of limelight nearly all his poems are a little too long a little tedious for the simple reason that the muzziness of vision in them limelight and all is bewildering to the intelligent there are few of his poems which close in splendor equal to the splendor of their opening verses the garden of proserpine is one of the few that keep the good wine for the last here however as in the rest of his poems we find beautiful passages rather than beauty informing the whole poem swinburne's poems have no spinal cord one feels this even in the most beautiful of his lyrics the first chorus in atalanta and calydon but how many poets are there who could have sustained for long the miracle of when the hounds of spring are on winter traces and the verse that follows miss disney leith tells us in a charming book of recollections and letters that the first time swinburne recited this poem to her was on horseback and one wonders whether he had the ecstasy of the gallop and the music of racing horses in his blood when he wrote the poem his poems are essentially expressions of ecstasy his capacity for ecstasy was the most genuine thing about him a thunderstorm gave him a more vivid pleasure than music or wine his pleasure in thunder and the gallop of horses and the sea was however one fancies largely an intoxication of music it is like one's own enjoyment of his poems this too is simply an intoxication of music the first series of poems and ballads it must be admitted owed its success for many years to other things besides the music it broke in upon the borghese moralities of nineteenth-century england like a defiant it expressed in gorgeous wordiness the mood of every green sick youth of imagination who sees that beauty is being banished from the world in the name of goodness one has only to look at the gray and yellow and purple brick houses built during the reign of victoria to see that the green sick youth had a good right to protest a world that makes goodness the enemy of beauty and freedom is a blasphemous denial of both goodness and beauty and young men will turn from it in disgust to the praise of venus or any other god or goddess that welcomes beauty at the altar the first volume of poems and ballads was a challenge to the lie of tall hated religion there is much truth in mr goss's saying that the poet is not a lotus-eater who has never known the gospel but an evangelist turned inside out he had been brought up puritanically by his mother who kept all fiction from him in his childhood but grounded him with the happiest results in the bible and shakespeare this acquaintance with the text of the bible says mr goss he retained to the end of his life and he was accustomed to be emphatic about the advantage he had received from the beauty of his language his early poems however were not a protest against the atmosphere of his home but against the atmosphere of what can only be described by the worn-out word respectability miss disney leith declares that she never met a character more reverent-minded and certainly the irreverence of his most pagan poems is largely an irreverence of gesture. 
he delighted in shocking his contemporaries and planned shocking them still farther with a volume called lesbia brandon which he never published but at heart he never freed himself from the hebrew awe and presence of good and evil his alohaba is a poem that is as moral in one sense as it is lascivious in another as mr goss says his imagination was always swinging like a pendulum between the north and the south between paganism and puritanism between resignation to the instincts and an ascetic repudiation of their authority it is the conflict between the two moods that is the most interesting feature in swinburne's verse apart from its purely artistic qualities some writers find swinburne as a great a musician as ever in those poems in which he is free from the obsession of the flesh but i doubt if swinburne ever rose to the same great heights in his later work as in the two first series of poems and ballads those who praise him as a thinker quote herther as a masterpiece of philosophy and music and it was swinburne's own favorite among his poems but i confess i find it a too long sermon swinburne's philosophy and religion were as vague as his vision of the world about him i might call myself if i wish he wrote in eighteen seventy five a kind of christian of the church of blake and shelley but assuredly in no sense a theist mr goss has written swinburne's life with distinction and understanding but it was so eventless a life that the biographer's is not an easy task the book contains plenty of entertainment however it is amusing to read of the author of anectoria as a child going about with Butler's shakespeare under his arm and in later years assisting joette in the preparation of a child's bible end of section thirty